Let's begin with lesson seven on James. Let's just pray before we jump in. Gracious Father, we thank you again for your gift of your word to us, your revelation of who you are, of where we have come from, of what is the point and meaning of our life, how we can honor you in light of this great salvation that we have been given. And so I pray, God, again, would you illuminate our hearts and minds as we spend this time gathered around your word. Uh, let it go deep within us. Let it um, take root within our heart and bear good fruit for the kingdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Lesson 7, James. Introduction to the book. It is wisdom from a biblical perspective, not the mere possession of knowledge, but the process of employing knowledge correctly in order to please God. In the Old Testament, God inspired what came to be known as the wisdom literature, the books of Proverbs, Job, I almost said Job, it's early in the morning, <laughs> Job, Song of Solomon, I sound like Joe Biden talking about palms, the, the palmist. <laughs> I just saw that video the other day, I'm like, good grief. Uh, so wisdom literature in the Old Testament, the Proverbs, uh, Job, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, had the intention of giving God's people practical instructions on how to live wisely in the fear of the Lord. So if all of this is true, how should we then live? At the heart of wisdom literature, uh, which basically is the same thing as the heart of the whole Old Testament, was the pressing reality of the coming kingdom of God. A kingdom whose principles and standards were foreshadowed in the admonitions and concise statements of principle that we find uh, throughout the Proverbs. If you think about Proverbs, it's difficult to read them in context because uh, it's just it's sort of these true statements, but they're just one-off statements uh, presented throughout most of the wisdom literature in the different texts. So as we come into the New Testament, as we've seen repeatedly, the kingdom of God uh, being foreshadowed in the Old Testament is now finally here. And the dawning of this new glorious age begs some important questions for Christians in pursuit of wisdom. So, in light of the gospel, has God left us any instructions about how to live wisely? And what does wisdom look like on this side of Calvary? There's nothing quite like the book of Proverbs or Ecclesiastes in the New Testament, uh, let alone a case study of the magnitude uh, of one on the scale of the book of Job, and yet, there's no question that in the gospel, God has unveiled the ultimate wisdom for his people. 1 Corinthians 1, 22 to 25, for Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ, a stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So in the hopes of addressing the question of wisdom in the kingdom of God, we turn now to the book of James. Not unlike Old Testament wisdom literature in its structure and tone, the book is also, perhaps more so than any other book in the New Testament, directly informed by Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So what is the purpose of this book? 
Why did James write this book? Well, to begin with, it was to encourage Christians after the persecution that had begun with the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7 and 8. And it, it's difficult for us to look back with any kind of uh, attached perspective. We have a very detached perspective when we read that. Uh, but it's difficult to imagine uh, what it must have felt like to be part of that early church and the momentum, the, the Holy Spirit has been poured out. People are just uh, getting saved left and right. There's miraculous things that are happening. And suddenly, one of your best, fastest, up-and-coming young men is dragged into the street and brutally murdered in front of you. I mean, talk about taking the wind out of the sails. So how do you encourage weary believers following that? So James writes, and we can see in the opening verses, uh, chapter 1, verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Again, uh, we can read that so detached until we go through trials in our lives, or you're walking with people who are going through trials in their life. Some of the most horrific things that you, you pray to God never happens within your family has happened in their family, and you have to stand there and say, count it all joy. Oh, that's a, that's a very, very careful statement. Uh, that needs to be much more than just a flippant nod to the truth of the gospel. It has to be, this is what I believe. This is what we will literally live and die for. So this book uh, clearly intends not only to encourage, but also to exhort young Christians to pursue wisdom. The author suggests that an essential element, uh, even the primary means of preserving, persevering in the Christian life, is wise living. So you can, in fact, be saved and be an idiot and have a very, very difficult life. If you're going to engage in ministry, you're going to meet lots and lots of those people. <laughs> By the way, if you're one who's listening, I use the idiot word rhetorically. We just do dumb stuff. It doesn't mean they're not saved. It doesn't mean they're not Christians. Uh, it could mean that they're still living according to the pattern of the old world, the old life, the old nature. And it just causes all kinds of pain and suffering for them. So the book of Proverbs declares the antidote to that is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The book of James at its climax, chapter 4, verses 4 through 10 in characteristically blunt yet pastoral language that we find from James, says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Do you suppose that is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposed the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. As these verses demonstrate wisdom in the New Testament, as in the Old it is ultimately an issue of repentance and faith, of turning uh, from our old way of sin, old way of thinking, old way of living, and looking with faith and hope towards God and his salvation. 
through Christ in humble devotion in faith. It's not just we turn from these things out of the power of our, our own will and self-determination. We're actually looking to Christ that his will has triumphed over our sin, which is just a beautiful thought. So James wrote this letter precisely so that Christians would know how to apply the gospel to their lives in a variety of situations so that they might indeed live wisely and in the fear of the Lord. So authorship and date of the book of James. <clears throat> uh, its title comes from James, Jesus' half-brother, the man who most scholars credit with authoring the book. The authority, which comes through in inordinate amounts and uh, just sort of unmatched tenacity. We just read it a second ago, you know, it, this blunt yet pastoral intervention in the lives of people uh, really reflects this same James that we see in his speech of the Council of the Elders in Jerusalem uh, in Acts 15, 13 to 21. Uh, James, who was a key leader in the early church in Jerusalem. Uh, James, who was martyred in AD 62, which means that he wrote this letter before then. Isn't that profound? <laughs> but think about it. Perhaps as early as AD 45. That's within 15 years of Jesus' ascension. <clears throat> several years, that would put it several years before the Council of Jerusalem. The general idea is that if he had written this letter after he met the Apostle Paul at the Council of Jerusalem, the letter would have more clearly dealt with with the way that Paul taught about justification, which is, I think, why some people want to pit Paul and James against each other. But what you're finding uh, is this um, different statement from two dudes who don't know each other yet. They, they haven't uh, colored each other's language and uh, rhetoric yet. <clears throat> so it must have been written prior to that council, which assumes sometime around AD 48. If this is correct, it would make the book of James one of the oldest books in the New Testament. Context and emphasis of the book, the book of James, understanding its context is of utmost importance. We don't have to read very far into the book before coming across passages that, on the surface at least, appear to contradict other foundational New Testament teachings. Uh, like I said, it, people like pitting Paul and James against each other. And then they feel like they have the trump card to lay down and say, see, the Bible contradicts each other. You can't, you can't believe it. Particularly uh, regarding the connection between faith and works that we'll jump into a little bit here. Uh, so let's just lay that on the table and tackle it a little bit. Specifically, the verses James 2, 24, that says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. <clears throat> so it's juxtaposing this text against Paul's teaching that this is how we get ourselves in trouble. Romans 3, 28, 28, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. One of those, if we're going to put those, uh, imagine that there's a shelf up on the wall that is justification before God being declared righteous before God. We're going to set both of those verses up there. Uh, and it's like the proverbial thing where two guys sit on opposite sides of the bench and when one gets off, the other just flies off. Like they can't both be true if they're both on that shelf. 
right? The problem is that's not the shelf they're on. Uh, so which, if we're going to say that, we have to say either James was wrong or Paul was wrong. So to start with, we know that James and Paul accepted one another as fellow believers. Like, you know, we don't have a retraction to the book of James. If James was written early, uh, we don't have him then meeting Paul and then writing James too. By the way, guys, just kidding, right? Uh, we, don't, we don't have any of that pulling back. Galatians 2.9 uh, James extends the right hand of, fel of fellowship to Paul. In Acts 21, 18 to 20, James praises Paul's ministry. Uh, if they had such contradictory views of salvation, how salvation, and by the way, uh, James, if we're going to read like that, if we're going to put that on the shelf of justification before God, sounds really Roman Catholic. That This is one of their go-to verses, right? And it we're not hosting school of ministry in coordination with the local Roman Catholic church here. Why? Because we have fundamental differences of opinions on how salvation is affected. Paul and James would not have been co-laborers together for the gospel. So how do we reconcile these two scriptures? To answer these questions, it's helpful to contrast the divergent yet equally worrisome teachings that prompted Paul and James to write their respective letters. So when Paul uses the word justified, he's employing it in a legal sense as a word that means to be declared not guilty. And he's declaring that not guilty before God. So in Romans, Paul's addressing the claims that the Judaizers who taught that God declared people guilty or innocent based on their actions, right? If you keep the law, God will de declare you righteous. If you break the law, you will be unrighteous before God. Paul counters by arguing that we are justified before God, not by the works of our own hands, which only ever supply damning evidence of our guilt, but by faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done on our behalf. So when Paul uses the word justification, He's meaning a declaration of righteousness before God. In Romans, as it were, we are the ones who stand in the courtroom. Uh, we're the ones who stand under the accusation and our hope of being declared just and righteous, accepted, not guilty before God is not based on our own works, our own actions, but on Christ alone. James, however, we have moved into the court of public opinion. So now this is not the courtroom as we stand uh, condemned before God. We are in the courtroom of public opinion. This is, we stand before our peers. We stand before, as it were today, social media. Uh, we stand before the church who is watching and guarding. When James uses the word justifies, he means a visible public vindication, a demonstration of a personal claim. Uh, I have been saved in Christ. And he says, you can't demonstrate that by to those who are watching around you by faith alone. It has to be accompanied by works, right? So we suddenly have a different shelf now. We, we had the shelf of uh, this is being declared righteous before God. And underneath that, uh, this is how other people are looking and seeing and what camp they're placing you in. So James is countering a common misunderstanding among wealthy Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, uh, perhaps even influenced by the misunderstandings of Paul's up-and-coming teachings. These hypocrites taught that the works were 
of little to no importance so long as a person believed the right things. It doesn't matter what you do. That this is this is sort of the uh, the misrepresentation of reform theology that gets thrown out there. Uh, once saved, always saved. Right? You can just uh, pray the right prayer and be saved before God, and then live just like you want the rest of your life. Uh, that is classic misrepresentation, and evidently not new. Right? It's the same thing James was combating. Uh, in contrast, James argues that the Christian faith is not justified or vindicated or proven by just a hollow orthodoxy. Well, I believe the right things. I, I put my trust in the right things, uh, but my life doesn't reflect it. He says it's by works that we provide evidence of our true faith. And I would say that is 100% true today, that your life, your actions, your thoughts, your words in a long trajectory, maybe not in the next 30 seconds. We can all have a bad moment. And that reflects something of what we're thinking and feeling and believing in that moment. But your life will bear out this, I believe. Right? And that's what James is arguing for. So in short, both James and Paul agree, if we were to quote Martin Luther, justification is by faith alone, but faith that is never alone. Right? That, that was sort of Martin Luther's thing. Like it is, it is faith alone that declares us righteous before God. But if that is true and saving faith, it will never be faith alone. It will be faith accompanied by our works. Instead, it is always accompanied by a life obedient, loving, led by the fear of the Lord. So what's the structure? Does that make sense? Any questions on that before we jump in? John, you got a comment? So maybe a practical application that's not in the text here, but just thinking uh, ministry-wise towards people, this is all we have. Uh, we don't have these spiritual goggles to be able to look into someone's heart and go, oh, this is what they really believe. This is, this is the true origins and depth of their faith. All we have is what James presents us, which is we see the works on the outside. Uh, therefore, Matthew 18, when it comes to church discipline, uh, it's based on what people do, which doesn't pull us into uh, any sort of legalism where, okay, now it's about a keeping of the law. Uh, we're just, we're examining a person's life, especially from an eldership oversight authority responsibility to look in and say, I hear what you're saying, but all the evidence of your life is pointing in the opposite direction. And then we lovingly, gently, but firmly call them to repentance, right? That, that's why uh, we can actually stand with that 
going one-on-one to a brother who has sinned. Their sin, we can't see their heart. We saw their actions, right? We heard their words. We uh, experienced their attitudes, calling them one-on-one to repentance, uh, taking another brother or sister along with you. If they don't listen, bringing it to the church. Uh, And I'll just tell you, uh, from a leadership perspective, this is painful and messy. When you have to examine what's the fruit of a person's life. Like, I hear your words, but I don't believe you. Which, yeah, we won't go down that road. Uh, I had a conversation with somebody in the not so distant past where I said, I I appreciate what you're saying, but I don't believe you bear fruit in keeping with repentance, like prove your alleged faith by your works. And we weren't calling for legalism. Uh, We were calling for uh, an evidencing among peers. This is what I believe. Any other thoughts on that? It gets really messy. Yeah. Aiden. I've heard it explained like this. <laughs> I fear that after you said the word barbaric, that your explanation was going to be, no. <laughs> no, I meant simple. Yeah, I got it. <laughs> All right, structure and outline of the book. It is deceptively short. Uh, James wastes very few words in his writing of this book. Five very concise chapters, the author packs in uh, more than 50 imperative verbs. In other words, commands, do this. A literary device that gives the writing a force disproportionate to its relatively brief layout. As in the book of Proverbs, the material is often presented in the form of pithy sayings grouped around particular themes. So many of the sayings and aphorisms carry the residue of Jesus' teaching in the gospel. For this reason, some scholars have characterized James as a kind of cliff notes or greatest hits album of Jesus' core teaching. Although it can have a collective sayings feel to it, there is, it is a, ne- a, a letter, right? So it, it's not just a generalized book of Proverbs out there for anyone who is interested. Uh, it is a letter. And as a letter, it follows a relatively loose structure that we can outline. Uh, Chapter one introduces the major arenas. Wisdom is displayed through testing, specifically in three areas of life, generosity, speech, attitudes towards money. And then he's gonna spend the rest of the letter stepping through each of those kind of individually. So chapter two, testing through generosity, Favoritism is forbidden, which leads to a discussion on faith and deeds. Chapter 3 through 4, testing through speech, taming the tongue, prayer, slandering, and boasting. And chapter 5, testing through our attitude towards wealth, followed by a summary and a conclusion. And again, keep in mind, constantly be reminding yourself when you read James, this is a demonstration 
for those around you, not for God. Okay. James has some common things to say about wisdom displayed in each of these three areas, generosity, speech, and money. Uh, just like we see some common themes across all varied topics in the book of Proverbs. So for the rest of the time in James, we'll look at these three themes, how they play out in all three of these areas and where we see those kind of lived out in our life. So the harmony between the law and the gospel, the faithful submission to God as a means of a blessed life and practical obedience. So the first one here, harmony between the law and the gospel. Although less explicit, explicit than other themes in the book of James, the harmony between the Old and New Testament, between the law in the Old Testament and the gospel of Christ in the New, is the backdrop against which the entire book is written the for, and forms the basis for how wisdom is to be displayed in the three arenas of life that James is going to deal with, of generosity and speech and wisdom. In the Bible, the law has three intended uses. Number one, to restrain sin and provide for civil society. Uh, this is law in the sense that Paul writes of it in Romans 1 and 2. Number two, to convict people of their sins and lead them to Christ. Paul writes of this in Galatians 3. Uh, you see it also in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. And the whole point of that is that it's not possible. Uh, these guys spent all day, every day, devoted to keeping the law. And he says, you have to go way past that if you're going to be declared righteous before God. Uh, Jesus' explanation of the law is intended to drive us to the cross by proving to us that we cannot possibly be good enough for God on our own strength. Number three, guide for how Christians should live in light of the gospel. Uh, this is the one that James seems to be the most concerned with. So going back to the Sermon on the Mount, for example, uh, once we have been driven to the cross, have, ex have accepted Christ's righteousness, lived out on our behalf, not our living out of righteousness, but Christ living it for us, we can now go back to that sermon and find incredible wisdom for how we should live the Christian life. And that's what we see James do here. Uh, it's the third use of the law. Even as Christians, imperative verbs are important. So sometimes we like to put Christians in the category of like the imperative is believe, trust, put your hope in Christ. And anything that comes after that, well, that's just legalism. That's just you imposing your will on me. But this distinction is important to understand as we read through the imperatives that James gives his readers. As we've already discussed, James is not commanding his readers to work for their salvation, but rather to show that they are saved. How do they do that? By their good works. This kind of living is not arbitrary moralism where we just got together, the, the bishops got together and we voted on what are the rules for our particular church, our area that we live in, right? That it's kind of the Amish way of doing things, which is why Amish people keep moving to Shipshawana because they are the NRA, the not really Amish, and you can do all kinds of cool stuff. Uh, it's not arbitrary moralism being imposed on the church, but evidence that we found wisdom in the gospel, that we are living in the fear of the Lord. Christ often spoke about the law in this way. As we previously mentioned, the book of James is heavily dependent on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. 
as he goes about instructing us on how we should live now that God's kingdom has come to us. So uh, there's a great sort of parallel here. I should see if I could print this out for you because I've got like three pages of uh, parallels from James and Matthew chapter 5. Is it in there? I already printed it out for you because I'm wicked smart. Just kidding. All right. I'm not going to take time to read that whole thing. Um, but consider James 1.5. If anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Matthew 7.7. 7, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. Uh, there's a, just a ton of those parallels. And for the sake of time, we're not going to read through them, but you can, you can check those out for yourself. Second area here, faithful submission. William Dumbrell, an Old Testament scholar, said this, the meaning in life cannot be understood within the human compass, but only within the framework of a vision of God. So if we just look at life from our own compass, our own internal direction system, our own internal this is right and this is wrong, uh, we cannot understand this life. It only comes from a framework of a vision of God. If you have ever grappled with the problems of suffering and evil or the seeming injustices in the world, you will know the truth of those words. You can't just reason into it. You can't just uh, give some explanation to uh, some skeptic who says, well, if God is good, how could he allow fill in the blank? Uh, there is no answer that will fully satisfy them. Why? Because they aren't seeing the world through the lens of the framework of knowing God. According to the book of James, the path to a blessed life in God's kingdom begins first and foremost with a submission to the Lord and to what he has to say about the world. Any wisdom that has anything else to say as its starting point is, in fact, foolishness. So in James 3, we read of the stark contrast between the so-called wisdom of this world and the wisdom of God. James 3, 13 to 18, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good, good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above, in contrast, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The wisdom, quote-unquote, of this world as this passage makes clear, stands in direct opposition to the wisdom that comes down from God. Uh, so think of wisdom from the world sort of coming up from the ground, uh, up from the, the contamination of this fallen world, as opposed to a wisdom that is above us. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our ways. As high as the heaven is above the earth, so high is his thoughts and ways above ours. In fact, blind and willful adherence to the world's wisdom is more than mere foolishness. It is an affront against the Lord. 
Again, chapter 4, verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So James calls us bluntly yet lovingly to chapter 4, verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. I would just interject here. There is a, a very real danger. Considering that to be true, there's a very real danger in uh, something we've talked about for quite a while, which is taking our Christian children and then setting them loose on a secular university that will seek to strip away everything that we have poured into them and lay a different foundation. It is a foundation built solely on the wisdom of this world and is antagonistic on the wisdom that comes from God. Uh, and we've just seen so often in the past young kids just sort of torn down and that's not to cast aspersions on their salvation and where they are and what god will do with that in the future we just have to be really careful uh, which makes me grateful that in a secular day and age that we have godly people and chuck and kareen are just a great example who are like actively day after day after day investing in the education of kids, not just our church kids, but community kids. Like we, we need light in the midst of that darkness. Praise God for that, right? That, that's a missionary uh, venture every single day when you get up and go to work. All right, back to James. Uh, this motives the action in our life. If we say this is true, if we say there, there's two types of wisdom, there's a world, worldly wisdom coming up that is broken and contaminated, and there's a God wisdom that comes down from above, uh, that should motivate us to some sort of action. So chapter 4, verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So if God has revealed it, we know it to be right, but we fail to do it, whatever our excuses are, James says it is sin. Simple but powerful as a principle to combat apathy and procrastination. Good must be done today and not tomorrow. The third area is practical obedience. The author, spent, author spends most of his time here. To James, obedience to God's word is our daily lives, and it is the ultimate display of wisdom lived out. Chapter 1, verse 25, But to the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He will be pleasing in his doing. True blessing, according to James, proceeds from applying God's word directly to our lives. Christianity is far from a passive enterprise. It is actually an active process of continually heeding God's word as we hear it, preached in community, and meditated on in our quiet times. There, there's a communal aspect as we together hear God's word, and there's an individual aspect as we privately meditate on God's word and apply it and live it out in our lives. Christianity is far more than just a belief system. It is also a way of life, a faith with implications on how we think and act. Christians, James concludes, are to be doers of God's word. As the book progresses, James ties this overarching admonition that Christians should be doers of God's word to some specific areas of life. Uh, generous love, 
James 2, verses 1 through 16, he entreats Christians to love others generously. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1. My brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the faith, uh, the Lord of glory. In these verses, we will learn that there was a temptation among the churches to whom James is writing to show favoritism to people based on worldly prestige and popularity. Aren't you glad that doesn't exist anymore? None, none of that is found in the church today. In the verses, we learn that there is a temptation among uh, not only them to do that, but there's a groundwork that is laid for James to then step in and call them back to a kind of undiscriminating and merciful love that Christ has displayed towards us in the gospel. I love that again and again we find in the New Testament and we should be acknowledging it in our lives and those around us. When we find uh, these failures, these wrong thinkings, even the sinful uh, attitudes and actions, it provides a groundwork for the gospel to come in and call us to greater faithfulness and obedience. Uh, oftentimes, we just get frustrated, like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> if we love Paul's words to the Galatians, who has bewitched you? Like, what the heck, man? Only we then get tired in our hearts and want to walk away, rather than saying, God, thank you for this opportunity to bring the gospel into that, to call your church to greater faithfulness. That's what the book of James does. And so he commands, not suggests, he commands. Chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. So speak and so act that those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Guys, act like this. Guys, talk like this. Let mercy triumph over judgment in your life and then in the way that you react with other people. It, it's not a suggestion. He says, just do it. To show favoritism is to forget that we have been shown grace by God. Grace that we, unfaithful sinners, right? We haven't deserved this. We haven't earned it. That we don't deserve to receive grace from a holy and righteous God. The fact that we have received such mercy in Christ should compel us to show love and mercy towards others. The next, next area, careful speech. In James 3, 1 through 12, and then in James 4, 1 through 3, and 11 through 17, James gives instructions concerning speech, the way that we talk about God and others. James 3, 7 through 10. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. When I worked in the trailer factory, they quoted that verse directly by saying, you kiss your mama with that mouth? <laughs> that was a loose interpretation. <laughs> Yet, isn't it funny? Uh, even, even the non-Christians in that environment recognized, oh, wait a minute, this shouldn't be so. <laughs> the language in these verses is poetic uh, and filled with potent me metaphors. James compares the human tongue, among other things, to a tiny spark that can nevertheless engulf a mighty forest in flames. 
A loose tongue to James reveals a lack of self-control. And a lack of self-control reveals a void of reverence and submission towards God. An untamed tongue reveals a fundamental lack of wisdom and invites judgment from God instead of God's blessing. So what comes out of our mouth, whether slander or praise, gossip or words of encouragement or silence or prayer, gives testimony about the condition of our heart. I'll read that one one more time because this is really good. What comes out of your mouth gives testimony about the condition of your heart. Uh, that's why I said a little bit ago, if you look at the trajectory of our life, it will prove ultimately what we believe, but we all have these moments, these little flare-ups where uh, an attitude pops out that you didn't expect or, or a sharpness to words pops out that you didn't expect. And in that moment, especially now if you're married, I don't encourage you to do this towards your spouse in that moment. Probably dangerous and bad. But especially for yourself, when you are caught in those coarse and sharp cutting moments, what comes out of my mouth gives testimony to the condition of my heart. That in my heart, perhaps in this moment, I'm not walking in closeness to God. I'm not fixing my eyes on Christ. I am looking at the wrong thing. That, that's what those, those words and attitudes should send up a red flag. I'm looking at the wrong thing. Catch yourself first. I don't recommend that in the midst of a disagreement. Disagreement is what we call them with a spouse. You're looking at the wrong thing, baby. Like duck. Get behind something solid. <laughs> if you do, you need cover, not concealment. All right. <laughs> okay. As regards the most difficult decisions we face in our speech, when we are in relational conflict, James has some profound insight for us. Here we go. Here you go, Tony. Uh, James 4.1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? <laughs> I'm just anticipating a whole crop of SOM people who memorize James 4, 1 through 3. <laughs> I see what's happening. You desire and don't have, and so you murder. <laughs> you covet and can't obtain, and so you fight and quarrel with me. <laughs> you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. <laughs> I've just seen this play out in my head, and it's so bad. <laughs> <laughs> Friends, again, let us begin this in our own hearts with people. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, Whew, good talk. Good chat, everybody. Let's just move on. Okay, compassionate wealth. <laughs> uh, seriously, now, uh, within your marriage, I, I remember when I met with the 
missions group to every tribe and with Destin and Jen Detweiler as they were looking to go to Canada and sitting in the, that conference room with the advisor. And he said, listen, any cracks in the foundation of your marriage will be exposed when you step into the battlefield of the mission field. Therefore, let's fix them now. Let, let's expose them now. Let's bring it to the light. Uh, let's not go in giving any foothold to the enemy, right? We're, we're going we're gonna to solemnly work through all of those things. And uh, it can be really beneficial because it, communication is a two-way street, but your breakdown in communication is literally the only bit of that that you're responsible for. So especially within your marriages, because this is a school of ministry. And if you want something that will take you out of the fight of ministry, uh, have a relational breakdown in your marriage, right? So within that, we have to fight for our own heart. Like, let's get our own heart on that solid foundation. And every time that those flare-ups come within us, uh, we back it up. I'm thinking wrongly. Right now, this is exposing something in my heart. We just back it up. Hey, can we just take 10 minutes? Uh, let's hit pause on this. Let, this is important. We need to like wrestle through this, whatever the thing is. But let's take 10 minutes and just each of us go before God, examine our hearts, um, examine our motives, examine the, the frustrations that we're bringing into this, uh, and then let's come back together and work through it. Where you can just step out just for a few minutes, like not, hey, let's table this for the next two months and hopefully never bring it up again and pretend like nothing happened. Uh, that's just deepening the cracks in the foundation. But let, let's take 10 minutes. Let's, let's take 30 minutes. Let's go before God. And then when you come back together, all right, let's, let's pray together. And each of you pray, God, forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for fixing my eyes on something other than you. Uh, thank you so much for this person that you have given to me. Uh, give us wisdom. Then have the conversation. You just pulled the fuse out of the bomb. I mean, really, that's, that seems like it is simple, but we could literally hit stop on the recording and go home today because that, if you can get that lesson right, it will go miles towards making you effective in your ministry. Uh, and if you get that wrong, it will derail your future ministry. All right, uh, let's move on to compassionate wealth in the book of James. Throughout the book, James also cautions his readers about wealth. Chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. He says them almost reverse there. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower fails and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. James reminds us that worldly riches are ultimately fleeting. They, they're not something, we don't boast in our great uh, accumulation of either money or possessions. James 4, 13 to 17, come now. You who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. 
Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. James warns against pride and boasting that often erupts from the fount of worldly success. This doesn't mean that worldly success is wrong or inherently evil. What is bad is we stop looking to God and his sovereign hand in our lives when we begin looking to our own power and wisdom. We know that wealth in itself isn't sinful. Chapter 1, verse 10, James calls rich believers to boast in his humiliation. But lest we think James is calling Christians to avoid wealth entirely and take up a vow of poverty, he gives some positive examples of how to handle money appropriately, namely by using it to bless others instead of just hoarding it for ourselves. Chapter 1, verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world. Because we have been so richly blessed in Christ, we are called and freed to use the wealth that we do have to bless others. So what's the application? What does wisdom look like in the kingdom of God? The life of wisdom, according to the book of James, is a life lived in submission to God, a life of faith evidenced by our works. Hopefully, as we've covered topics like applying the law to our own lives, faithful submission, practical obedience, careful speech, compassionate wealth, and love, you've been encouraged and challenged in different areas of your life, which gives us pause to go, okay, which one of those do we find hardest for us? Like, what's the difficult area of applying the book of James in our own life? And then we just prayerfully go before God. We uh, intentionally bring that before other brothers and sisters, and we walk that out in community. So in closing this, let's consider a few more points of application. Uh, number one, pursue true wisdom. If you are tempted... To look to the world for wisdom as opposed to God's wisdom, let James be both warning and encouragement to you. The wisdom that leads to a blessed life comes only from God and his word. Let God's word be the standard and guide for your life. Chapter 4, verse 10, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Number two, examine your relationships. James' admonition to avoid favoritism should cause us to examine, among other things, our relationships and social interactions. Who are your friends and the people you often find yourself gravitating towards and reaching out to? Are they the people who dress a certain way? Are they the people who have a certain type of job? Are the people who have interests that line up line by line with ours? And if they are, we are not actually building godly, fellowship-based, gospel-based relationships. We're showing favoritism in the way that we interact with others. Or are we loving people, and I love this word, indiscriminately, mindful of how God has loved us in Christ? Number three, commit to meditating on James. Hold James' definition of Christian faith, a faith that produces good works, up to the life, up to your life like a mirror, and respond accordingly. Ask if here's, oh man, 
here's where you can really put the rubber to the road here. Ask a friend about what fruit they have seen in your life in the past few months, especially in regards to the way that you speak, handle money, and serve others. And if you really want to live dangerously, ask your spouse. Ask your parents. Even those of us who are quite a bit older, ask your parents, uh, what fruit do you see in my life in this? And if you really want to live dangerously and you have old enough children, ask your children. Put your big boy pants on, though. Ask them to help you discover ways to grow and glorify God in those areas. These are passages in James which, if taken to heart, can change our lives and relationships. So we should spend time reading it, meditating on it, even memorizing verses from it. Lesson 8. First Peter. John, you want to come and take us through this? And then after this one, we'll take a break. Alrighty. First Peter. So in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And, uh, to the crowds there, these would have been shocking words because uh, these were Roman times. Uh, and the cross Jesus was calling them to bear was not some nice spiritual symbol that we in our modern age uh, see hanging from our necks uh, or tattooed on the guns, that is the biceps, of uh, musicians, athletes, everyday people, uh, Christians, non-Christians alike. Uh, what's that? Oh, John. <laughs> well, I do have that one. Never mind. Uh, <laughs> uh, the cross in. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, the cross in Jesus Jesus's time uh, was a cruel instrument of execution. It was a place where people suffered, bled, and died. You did not get off of the cross alive. It was designed that way. Uh, so here in this verse, when Jesus said, you would have to take up your cross and follow me, he is alerting his followers to the fundamental reality about the Christian life, namely that it involved, involves suffering. Uh, in this verse, he's making it clear that he was on the way to the cross himself and that uh, if we would be his followers, we would have to go that way as well. And this isn't to say that we're to go out and court hostility through needless and unwise provocations. Hi, you're an idiot. Punch me in the face because I love Jesus. You know, that's not what he calls us to do. Uh, it's in a world that is hostile towards God. It only follows that God's people, as they seek to glorify God, are going to encounter persecution. Uh, as they often say, let the truth offend and not your manner. Let the truth offend, not your manner. So Paul even says at Point Blake in 2 Timothy 3.12, he says, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus might be persecuted. That's not what it says. It says everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
Uh, and, and really his words accurately describe uh, the experience of countless brothers and sisters uh, throughout church history. And if we want to uh, endeavor to pursue a godly life, they're going to describe ours as well. These words will describe our lives as well. So why do Christians suffer? And how should Christians in the midst of suffering respond? Uh, and in answer to these questions, we have the book of First Peter. Uh, probably more than any other book in the New Testament, First Peter deals with suffering and the proper response to it. Uh, why, it why it occurs, um, what is it for, what are we supposed to do when it comes our way? So, First uh, Peter has been described as a model of the pastoral letter. The writer, which this is going to blow your minds, was Peter. <laughs> Whoa! Which one? Wait. Yeah, both. <laughs> is that not like mind blown? Uh, so the writer Peter clearly intends uh, for the book to uh, refresh and encourage believers who are suffering for Christ uh, as he delivers line after line of comforting truth. And this comforting takes two different forms. One is through encouragement. Uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So really the, the tone of the verses is optimistic. Uh, some would say ecstatic even. Uh, when he talks about we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. In other words, who can touch it? No one. No one who persecutes you on this earth can touch the inheritance that God has for you. Uh, so his optimism in these verses might seem ironic or some would say delusional uh, at first, uh, given the, the circumstances that the Christians of the time were finding themselves in. But unlike the uh, baseless morale boosting uh, so common in our culture, uh, you know, everything's going to be all right, or just stay positive, you'll get through it. Just follow your heart, you know, Disney theology. Um, we have a Disney theology in our culture, but unlike the Disney theology that is rampant in our culture, the comfort offered in these verses is rooted in a historical fact of monumental significance, the resurrection of Christ from the dead. So uh, it, again, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us. So Jesus' resurrection, uh, the fact that he defeated death and is now alive and reigns as king, gives us a living hope and an inheritance, as we read in verse 4, again, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. So the hope and inheritance that we have in Christ 
kind of helps put our sufferings in this world in a much needed perspective. Uh, indeed, in light of the riches we have in Christ and which we're going to enjoy for all eternity, uh, this life and his hardships uh, seem only like a little while, as verse 6 says. And uh, we're going to come back to this uh, a little later, so I'm not going to talk about all the wonderful things about it right now. Uh, so one, the comforts come in the form of encouragement, and then also the comforts come in the form of imperatives, which an imperative is a command. So uh, any of you who's run a marathon like me, <clears throat> yeah, humble and a liar, uh, so, <laughs> uh, so any of you who may have run a marathon, actually you have, haven't Chuck has, uh, taken the bar exam, uh, or even experienced something as minor as a flat tire. Now I can raise my hand. <laughs> uh, we know something of the comfort that comes from being prepared. Unless you get two flat tires all at once, uh, and then the person who comes to help you change those tires then gets a flat tire on his way home. God bless Andrew Shield. Uh, <laughs> so that was a rough day. Uh, but anyhow, you know the comfort that comes from being prepared, uh, from having been instructed in how to respond to that. And so that's the kind of uh, comfort we see offered in passages like 1 Peter 3, 9, where... Uh, we see commanded of Christians, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So when people insult us for loving Christ, we are to bless them, pray for them, love them, uh, taking cues from how Christ has loved us. Because remember, at one time, we were his enemies. And it was while we were still his enemies that he died for us. So following Christ, in other words, doesn't mean that uh, merely that we're going to suffer the way Christ suffered, but it also means that we must respond to suffering the way Christ responded to suffering. Uh, we need to respond to uh, persecution the way Christ responded to it. And how did he respond to persecution? Chapter 2, verse 23 says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So by blending the, these Christ-centered imperatives uh, with these words of encouragement, First Peter gives us an amazing arsenal of comfort uh, when we are suffering for the sake of the kingdom. So what is the, the date and who was this, this letter written to? Uh, and again, because of the time period of this, suffering from the kingdom is exactly what uh, Peter's intended audience was, was doing. It's what they were going through. Uh, from his continued references to insults, slander, malicious speech, uh, it seems that the Christians to whom he, he's writing are facing this kind of abuse, verbal abuse uh, particularly. Uh, perhaps their devotion to Christ has made them the butt of jokes or subjects of nasty diatribes in, in the town square. Uh, if you have ever had an unbelieving 
family member uh, berate you and be condescending towards you uh, for sharing your faith, or maybe you've worked under a boss who makes jokes about Christians, uh, then you you know the sting that can come from that type of persecution, if, especially when it's loved ones or uh, when it's former friends. Uh, but you know how it can lead to tears, it can lead to despair. Uh, it's not a fun thing to go through. So Peter pins his letter for this kind of an audience, an audience who is feeling uh, social ostracism because of their allegiance to Christ. Uh, that social uh, ostracism would have been family, friends, uh, employers, uh, commerce, those kinds of areas. And we know a bit about the location of the original audience as well. Uh, in verse 1 of chapter 1, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, that means scattered, they were scattered abroad, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And we have a good idea of where Peter was when he wrote this book. Uh, there's a clue there in chapter 5, verse 13, as he's concluding the book. He says, she who is at Babylon, I was about to say Babylon instead of Babylon, Bobbaland. Sounds like some 50s doo-wop song. Ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-land. Ba-ba-ba-ba-ba. Anyhow. Uh, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen. He just recorded that. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't have had that uh, double shot this morning uh, of espresso. Uh, <laughs> Uh, she Notice I haven't yawned yet. Uh, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. So here, just like as it is in Revelation, uh, Babylon is likely a symbolic reference to the city of Rome. Uh, and also in this verse, Peter refers to Mark, but not Paul, which is telling because we know that Paul was with Mark in Rome until around 62 AD. Uh, and that was the year that Paul was released from his first Roman imprisonment. So for these reasons, uh, most scholars believe that 1 Peter was probably written around uh, AD 63 after Paul was already gone. Um, but before uh, Nero's intense persecution of Christians began. So this letter was not penned. Uh, to Christians experiencing the threat of imprisonment and death, that was going to be coming later. Instead, the persecution these believers were facing was most likely of a type that we would more commonly face here today uh, in the United States, here in Indiana, uh, as family, friends, even strangers may mock us for our hope in Christ. And the date of the book is important to understand. Uh, because it means that letter was not only a comfort to Christians already in the midst of suffering, uh, it was also helping to prepare its readers for the harsher forms of persecution that were to come. Uh, and we might consider that uh, in studying this book now, today, uh, we may be doing the same thing. It may be preparing us for harsher, persecu harsher persecution uh, yet to come. So what is the structure and outline of 1 Peter? Uh, looking at the structure is going to introduce us to some of the themes that we're going to discuss in more detail uh, in 1 Peter. Uh, how does he organize his encouragements and his commands? 
Unlike Paul's letters, which often divide nicely into first sections of theological argument and then sections of application, First Peter kind of fuses the two. He is tethering the, imper- the imperatives to theology and the theology to imperatives, oftentimes in a single verse. Uh, you're going to find that Peter uh, reprises similar themes again and again, adding layers and nuances as he moves along. And that repetitiveness is an incredibly valuable t- tool. Uh, if I ask you what's two plus two, what will you say? Four. What would you say? Nothing. Uh, how many of you guys, if somebody asks you what's two plus two, have to go, okay, wait, 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 I know this, I know this. Four. Now, most of us, when we get two plus two, we know immediately, oh, it's four. Because it is, it's been repeated time after time after time after time so that it's not even a thought to be able to think of the answer. It's, it's just there. And so this repetitiveness that we see in Peter is a very useful tool to get that ingrained into us. Uh, And also, as he's repeating, he can start adding those layers and nuances because we've already laid that he's already laid a foundation. So this repetitiveness, rather than being redundant, monotonous, it's actually a great tool to help his his audience uh, take to heart and store in their heart what he's trying to get across. And so throughout the letter, Christ is presented as the unique and blameless Savior who rescues his people from the eternal suffering that they deserve. But he's also presented as an example of how God's people are to face up to suffering this side of heaven. So in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Peter begins the letter by describing Christians in two ways. First, he calls them elect, um, God's chosen people, his representatives in the world. Then the very next word, he refers to them as exiles. Uh, So this juxtaposition that we're both God's elect and exiles in the world uh, helps us order Peter's commands and encouragements throughout the letter. So first, he's going to focus on what it means to be elect, and then he's going to move on to what it means to be the exiles. So in verse 3 of chapter 1 up through uh, chapter 2, verse 10, uh, we start to see the benefits and demands of being God's elect. This is the focus of the section. Uh, Peter reminds us of the living hope and inheritance that we have in Christ. In verses 10 through 12, he says this, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So our salvation is made all the more glorious because of how it was prophesied in the Old Testament. Uh, so glorious, in fact, I love the way Peter says it, that angels long to look into such things. Uh, now, Peter then shifts to the responsibilities that come with being identified as God's people. And uh, this section is probably best summed up with verses 15 and 16 of, of chapter 1, where he writes, But as he who called you is holy, 
you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it was, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Uh, so that that kind of sums up as he's shifting to the responsibilities that we have as God's people, uh, and then he goes on to elaborate on that. Uh, he talks about how we are also aliens and strangers in the world. And I've got a Petra song in my head. Uh, to this end, he implores them to exhibit a lifestyle different from, yet still attractive to, um, the hostile world in which they live. Uh, being saved from the fate of this world does not exempt us from our responsibilities as uh, workers, citizens, spouses, parents. Uh, in fact, our salvation actually frees us to be faithful in these various roles that God gives us in this world. And so the lifestyle that Peter has in mind here is characterized supremely by Christ-like submission along with good and peaceful relationships with fellow brothers and sisters and whenever possible uh, with non-Christians as well. And then in chapter 4, uh, beginning in verse 12, uh, through the, the end of the book, uh, Peter launches into appropriate responses to suffering. Uh, he's emphatic that Christians endure suffering according to God's will. How do we endure suffering according to his will? One, by entrusting our lives and circumstances to God. And two, by continuing to live righteously. Uh, in other words, it, it all has to start with the foundation that God is sovereign and he is in control. This is according to God's will. We have to entrust our lives and circumstances to God's sovereignty and his faithfulness. And therefore, by his grace, continue to live righteously. Uh, in chapter 4, verse 12 through 19, uh, he says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. For if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Uh, and then later on in chapter 5, he calls on church leaders to care for the flock for the right reasons and uh, on church members to submit to their overseers. And then the book closes with Peter urging his audience again to, to stand firm. Uh, and so we could summarize the book this way. The topic is persecution, and our confidence in the midst of persecution is the living hope and inheritance that we have in Christ. But now, what is our goal? What is it that we're working toward uh, with this confidence we have 
uh, and the living hope and inheritance we have in Christ. It is not to simply survive persecution, but to take that persecution and turn it into a testimony, turn it into a witness. In uh, chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they do speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And what is that going to accomplish? Uh, well, what aspects of life should we focus on to put forward a positive witness in the midst of persecution? Well, submit to the state. Oh, but yes, submit to our governing authorities. Uh, submit to your boss. Submit to your husband. Submit to the church. Uh, and those are the things, the aspects of life uh, that we should focus on that's uh, being put forward here. And so there's a submission, basically, it could be summed up this way, a submission to authority. Uh, it, it's a good thing to think through the next time you struggle in this area. Right behavior toward authority is the primary way in which we witness to the truth of the gospel, even in times of suffering. It is a primary way that we witness to the goodness and sovereignty of God as well. Uh, for We know from Romans 13 where Paul says, there is no authority except that which is established by God. Um, not allowed by God, it says established by God. It's not that God allows ungodly leaders. He establishes whatever authority there is. So, a right behavior toward authority, whatever kind of authority that may be, is a primary way we witness to the truth of the gospel, of which the supremacy and goodness of Christ is the foundation, that, that he is a good and sovereign and faithful God. Therefore, even in times of suffering, even if it's a direct result of the authority in my life, I will trust God and I will behave rightly toward that authority. I will respond in a Christ-like manner. And so some of the major themes that we see here, um, of course, as we've already mentioned, uh, it's a book for Christians going through tough times. But he's not talking about the suffering people face when they do evil. He's already made that clear. It's not written to thieves offering them pointers on how to endure a prison sentence. Um, and again, reading again, uh, verse 20 of chapter 2, for what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So uh, Christians should never face this kind of suffering uh, because Christians should not do such thing. The kind of suffering that comes from doing wrong. Uh, because Christians should not do such things. And by extension, Peter's not writing about suffering that stems, stems from just doing stupid things, um, not managing your money well, refusing good counsel, um, harboring ungodly patterns of thinking. He's not talking about enduring suffering that stems from, from foolishness, unwise decisions. Uh, he's not talking about the suffering that comes from things like natural disasters, war, economic turmoil. He's not talking about unemployment, disease, broken hearts. Although we find 
direction and encouragement and comfort for some of those situations in other places in Scripture. Uh, and it's not to dismiss those things as causing real pain, real grief. It's just that in this letter, Peter has a different kind of suffering in mind. And that is, again, explicitly the suffering that comes as a result of following Christ. So his readers are going through rough times because of their faith. And once, you know, these individuals were accepted uh, by everyone as good people. But now that they had become Christians, now that they were followers of Christ and they were doing good, they were suffering and being grieved by various trials, as he says in verse 6 of chapter 1. Well, uh, a number of questions result from this. Why is the suffering occurring? When will it end? How do we endure in the meantime? So why is this suffering happening? I mean, if they're doing good, why are they suffering for doing good? Uh, and first, it, we have to look at that relationship between holiness and suffering, and then the relationship between Christ's suffering and ours. Uh, and then the question of when will it end, we'll uh, answer that in a minute by taking up the third theme, that of vindication. And then the question of how can we endure, we'll examine, uh, examine Peter's theme of a right response to suffering. But first, the relationship between holiness and suffering. Uh, he makes it clear that Christians suffer because God is our creator and Lord, and he has chosen us to be his special people. Again, think back to uh, chapter 1, verse 1. We are God's elect exiles. Uh, you can almost look at it as a cause and effect kind of description of Christians. The elect exiles, cause and effect. As God's elect, we are called exiles out of this world to be holy, to be set apart. In chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And notice in this passage what God has done. We were not his people, then he made us his people. Now that we have been made holy, we are called to live lives of holiness. So God first makes us new, then we live anew. And that is an incredibly important order. You can try to live, to live anew all you want, and it will never make you new. It must first be that God makes you new. Then and only then can you live anew. As he says in verses 14 and 16 through 16 uh, of chapter 1, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of, your, passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." So our holiness, like God's holiness, con combines the idea of set-apartedness uh, and the idea of Christ-like purity. God has made us holy. And if God's people live as a holy people, the world is going to think that we're strange. Why? Because we live in a reverent 
fear of God rather than in conformity to the world. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. So Christians, in a sense, live in two worlds at once. Uh, the new world has begun for us because God has given us a new birth. On the other hand, we obviously continue to live within the old world around us. And, and this, is, that's, this world around us is the only world that non-Christians see. So our actions, attitudes, comments, commitments, they seem strange and even bizarre to them because there are commitments to a world they cannot see. Their attitudes that stem from a world they have no accurate concept of. Uh, it's like somebody living in a 2D world and somebody who lives in 3D steps in and that 3D person looks completely out of place in that 2D world. That's us. We are 3D people living in a 2D world and so for all the people who are still part of this 2D world, we don't fit. We're weird. So Christianity is not solely an argument over doctrine. It's also a witness borne by the way that our new life says to your non-Christian friends, there is a different way to live. There is a different world to be a part of. And the fact is that people don't like to be confronted with a different way to live. It implies that they might need to change the way they're living. And people don't often like that. So what do we do with this first theme? Well, it's a reminder that some degree of abuse from the world around us is not only normal for Christians, it's actually a good diagnostic that things are going well for us in our life of love for God. Uh, you know, if, if you were being persecuted in any kind of way, uh, suffering abuse in any kind of way, it is a good diagnostic to say, well, I must be doing something right. Uh, so we can use this letter both to inform exactly how our lives should be different from the world around us and as a source of comfort when that holiness in, results in persecution, as it often does, and as as it should uh, in our lives. Uh, and then what is the relationship between Christ's suffering and ours? That's the next thing. Uh, that's the next reason that we suffer as Christians. We are called by God to participate in the sufferings of Christ. Uh, so First Peter is full of references to Christ's suffering, uh, his blood, his rejection, his death. Uh, in the most important sense, Christ's sufferings were unique. One, he died for our sins. We will never go through that. Christ did that once and for all. Uh, Christ was a substitute, bearing God's punishment for those who would repent and believe in him. So again, his sufferings were unique from ours. 
But in another sense, in a secondary sense, Peter hears a calling and sees an example for the Christian in Christ's sufferings. Uh, they present a model for what we uh, as followers of Christ are to do as we continually repent of our sins and follow hard after Christ. He says uh, in chapter 2, 20 and 21, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. So again, with this in mind, we recognize that we suffer because Christ suffered. And just as his sufferings made more glorious his victory over sin, our suffering is going to result in all the more joy when he and his people are finally vindicated. And it will result in a greater glorification of God in and through our lives. But uh, suffering is not the only thing promised for those who follow Christ. Uh, we're going to talk about future vindication here. A uh, third theme of 1 Peter is that one day our suffering will end. Uh, Christ may be our example in suffering, but he's also our example in vindication. Uh, again, our rejection on earth is a passing human verdict. Uh, you know, you've heard the phrase, this too shall pass. Um, it may seem like a hollow platitude at times, but it is absolutely true. Uh, what we experience here on earth is not final and it is not divine. We will be saved through Christ's own vindication. So Peter presents Noah as an example of one who is vindicated. In chapter 3, verses 20 through 22, he says, uh, and this is in the ark that Noah built, a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now recall how, <coughs> how Noah was ostracized by his neighbors for trusting God and for building the ark. Uh, and remember God's faithfulness to him and his small crew during the flood. So we, uh, if we struggle in the face of opposition, wondering if something is wrong because of your suffering, look to the example of Christ and look also to the example of Noah and that God will vindicate those who truly follow him. And then what are the right responses to suffering? How should we respond? What does a Christ-like response look like? So uh, suffering for us is a given. Uh, for a time, but it too will pass uh, as God vindicates us in his glory. But uh, let's zero, on this, zero in on this a little bit more because Peter has much to say on how we should respond. One, we should respond as witnesses. Uh, Peter calls on us in the midst of suffering to be witnesses to non-Christians and even to desire the good of those who persecute us. So Peter, uh, you know, the disciple who denied Jesus three times, then watched him, then watched Jesus suffer for him, uh, learned this from Jesus' example. It said in chapter two, 
When he is reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Peter knew firsthand the righteousness or the forgiveness of Christ. Uh, he knew firsthand how how good Christ could be, even toward one who had denied him. And we need to remember how good God has been toward us. We have deserted him. We've rebelled against him. Uh, we have sinned against him. Yet he responded and will respond with incredible love toward us. So how can we then treat those who mock us in any other way? So when we are to be witnesses of Christ, uh, toward those who persecute us. We are also to respond in love. Peter calls us to show love to one another. And this is particularly difficult and important when the church is going through strife and persecution. Uh, You know how when the going gets tough, there we go. In case you missed that, uh, you know how when the going gets tough, the great one's party was the response. Now, everybody knows that the proper response is when the going gets tough, we can grow short with one another, withdraw from one another completely. We've all heard that saying, right? Wow, lots of blank stares. So when the going gets tough, often our response, especially towards loved ones, is that we can grow short with one another. We, we snap at each other. Um, or we just withdraw from one another. Uh, when stress afflicts the church from the outside, stress on the inside often follows. Uh, just like pressure causes cracks to appear in a building, so it's going to cause fissures in churches. Just, just a chance I just dumped all of <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> In uh, chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, it says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So in these times of strife and spiritual attack, we should be banding together, upholding one another. Uh, In short, we are to love one another with the very love of Christ. And then third thing, uh, when it comes to a right response to suffering is that we submit. Uh, Finally, we have Peter's extended imperative that Christians submit to authority, which can be very surprising in a book concerned with suffering because of said authorities. Uh, He keeps this theme up beginning in chapter 2, verse 13, and running through much of chapter 3. In verses 13 and 14, he says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to emperors as supreme or to governors as sent by him 
to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Then he goes on to command servants to submit to and respect their masters, wives to be subject to their husbands, and later he calls on the church to submit to and serve each other. Why is this so important? Why is this idea of submission so important uh, when it comes to a right response toward suffering? So submission, again, whether it's authorities, husbands, masters, elders, one another, whatever it may be, submission is befitting of Christians because it displays our hope and trust in a higher authority. It enhances our witness about God. Uh, Paul confirms that God has instituted and ordered authority in the world. Romans 13, 1 and 2, uh, which we had mentioned earlier, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God, not just allowed, but instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. So Christians should respect authority because it comes from God. And, and this uh, respecting of our authorities, it bolsters our witness as those who follow God. But the question may and often is raised, what about when this authority is abused or even used to ridicule us for doing good? Should Christians respect authority then? Well, though we should never submit to authority to the point that we disobey God, Peter, just like Paul in Romans, makes it clear that the normal pattern is for Christians to submit to authority, both in good times and in bad. Uh, which brings us to the second reason why submission is befitting for Christians. It's because it evidences our eternal freedom in Christ. Uh, Peter's admonition in chapter 2, verse 13, be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution, it's paired with verse 16 with this admonition. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So as Christians, we can submit, even if we're persecuted for our faith by the people in authority over us. Uh, why? Because we know that Christ, the ultimate authority, who is raised from the dead and now sits at the right hand of God, will have the final word. Uh, whatever our authority may be, Christ is going to have the final word. So ultimately, we absolutely have nothing to fear. We are free, and because we are free, we can submit and even do it with joy, knowing that we are in, living in a way that commends Christ. So Peter instructs slaves or servants Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Uh, passages like this are particularly meaningful uh, when we think about the various injustices that each of us may see or experience uh, at work in the world around us. Uh, maybe at work, right? around you. Uh, you know, if you have a boss who manages selfishly or acts cruelly or mockingly, I have to go through it every day. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Andrea. <laughs> uh, 
So likewise, P- Peter commands wives, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, uh, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Uh, in both of these instances, uh, submitting to your master, submitting to your husband, submission is presented as a way to witness to the lost and to share in Christ's sufferings. And uh, again, Peter reminds us that we have the greatest, greatest example of uh, submission in Jesus himself. In verse 23 of chapter 2, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, <clears throat> but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So uh, in conclusion, throughout this letter, Peter gives numerous directives, numerous words of encouragement. He says, prepare your minds for action. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking as Christ. Be self-controlled, be alert, and trust your soul to a faithful creator. Stand firm. And Peter himself did that. Uh, Early historical sources inform us that Peter died being crucified in Rome as a martyr because he was living for Christ. So like Peter, we need to commit ourselves to our faithful creator and to continue to stand firm uh, and consider what God is calling you to. Are you being called to give up a particular sin? Uh, you are called to be a witness. You, are you being called to go for him? Are you being called to stay for him? In all of these things, what's holding you back? What is holding you back from what God is calling you to? So something that we as Christians all need to consider and think about on a daily basis. But uh, we will continue with 2 Peter and Jude here in a moment uh, after taking about a five-minute break. Okay, let's jump into lesson nine, Second Peter and Jude. Introduction. Opposition to the gospel comes in different forms and from various sources. We've discussed in our study in the books, uh, such as Galatians, opposition to the gospel can come from within the church in the form of false teaching. In the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians, we're warned of a powerful faction inside the churches in Galatia that was steering these congregations back towards Old Covenant-style law-keeping. Church leaders were advocating legalism, and Paul, compelled by love and concerned for souls, wrote to expose the error of such teaching. So Galatians 3, 23-26, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Truth of the gospel, that righteousness comes by grace through faith in Christ, was at risk of being undermined, in this case, because of an undue emphasis on works. However, Legalism, the idea that we can somehow work our way into God's favor and acceptance by keeping some particular set of rules or rituals, is only one of many false teachings that can infect churches 
and distort the gospel. On the opposite end of the spectrum, although no less dangerous and detrimental, is what's known as antinomianism, uh, literally against the law or no law. The, uh, that idea for Christians uh, usually manifests in works no longer matter at all. It doesn't matter what you do, just what you believe. It is this grievous misunderstanding of grace that the books of Second Peter and Jude seek to address. So we'll be looking through them together in this lesson since they're both focused on the same thing. In each of them, the writers are intent on giving Christians confident assurance about their salvation, about the trustworthiness of God's word, and about bad fruit and certain judgment of faithful, faithless teachers who distort the gospel. So the purpose of these letters, the purpose of each of these books was warn Christians against false teaching, particular this teaching of antinomianism. That's the context in, into which they're written and to encourage them to persevere in true faith. Second Peter, the false teacher, seems to be uh, imminent or just developing, in chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So he, he almost seems to be saying it's it's coming. It, it, we're just on the verge of this thing. So 2 Peter is an attempt to head off antinomianism before it gets a foothold. For this reason, Peter spends much of the letter encouraging his readers to be on guard, to live lives that are pleasing to God. In Jude, on the other hand, the false teaching seems to have already taken hold. The false teachers are present. So Jude verse 4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designed, designated for condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. The church has been infiltrated by teachers who are using the grace of God as an excuse for sin and moral laxity. For this reason, the tone, the tone of Jude is more urgent than 2 Peter. 2 Peter, it's this is coming. Jude, it's here. And therefore, in Jude, few words are wasted. The writer is persistent in exposing the motives and sure destruction of these false teachers and in urging his readers to stand against such teaching and contend for the truth. Because of the similar themes and language that we find in both of these letters, both of these books, uh, it's likely that these books were written in light of each other. Uh, again, most of these New Testament epistles weren't just designated for one reader. It, they were given to either a person or a church, but then they were meant for a wider readership, which is why we're dealing with them together in our study of it. Uh, in the early days of Christianity, letters such as these written by the church fathers would have been widely distributed. So uh, it's interesting. You think about today, it's, it's actually illegal for you to touch somebody else's mailbox. Like it, it's a federal crime. It, even if you're just distributing information into your neighborhood, you can't stick it in their mailbox. It, it's sort of a sacred space. You're, you're not allowed to touch it. Uh, these letters are kind of the opposite. They were, they were like the first email forward that was put out there just spam it out to everybody 
Can we call the Bible spam? I don't think we can. Okay, anyways. Uh, <laughs> so it's possible uh, that these letters could have sort of cross-referenced in sourcing each other. Uh, just a couple similarities. Again, do you have this giant list in your handout? Yes. Good. Uh, I'll just read the first one here. Second Peter verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 12. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you knew you know them and firmly are established in the truth that you now have. Uh, Jude, verse 5. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. Uh, just similarities in language. You can look down a bit further. We're not going to read it, but Second uh, Peter 2, verses 10 through 12. Uh, so much overlapping language. Is yours bolded in, in it? Yeah. Where you just see despise authority, slandering celestial beings, uh, yet even being slanderous, accusations against. They do not understand. They're brute beasts. And then you just look across and you're like, oh, somebody copied and pasted here. Like uh, these are clearly overlapping in their understanding and communication. So, which letter came first? Uh, well, it's kind of hard to say. Now, whatever the order of the authorship, what we should take away from this is that false teaching was and is serious enough to merit two letters in the New Testament. Uh, we can kind of shy away from this today uh, when confronting false teachers and feeling sort of this urge towards uh, Christian generosity and kindness. And, well, we don't want to... We don't want to call anybody out. We don't want to cause division. Uh, two letters were almost copied and pasted, and then both of them included in the New Testament to say false teaching is serious. We have to go after it. We can't allow it to take root in a congregation. Before we get into the intended audiences of the letters, let's pause here and just point out how relevant they are today. The broader evangelical culture we still have false teachers who simply say true faith is verbal assent or walking down an aisle or raising your hand uh, it's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace which is interesting because he was in a theological camp that was heading in that direction um, but his life was cut off before it went there uh, it is a grace that costs the believer nothing uh, his life does not change and he continues to look just like he did in the world this is liberal christianity at a t we we believe certain things with sort of a wink and a nod kind of uh, but it doesn't necessarily affect our life and it certainly doesn't change anything dramatically on how we share truth with those around us because that's their truth right? can you hear this this echo into modern liberalism it's just corrupt into the church, uh, and it's just eating through mainline denominations like a cancer. No, true faith will produce real works. It will change the way that you think and behave and speak in this world. We'll get more into that later, uh, but I just want to make sure that we are aware at the outset this actually does apply to today, that this speaks to us and our world, even to our church in the middle of tiny little Indiana nowhere, um, this is real. In fact, maybe more real today 
than ever before because of the proliferation of online media where members of our church who would never go hear a particular preacher here or there can now pull up their podcast and listen to it every single day. Just be inundated with bad theology. We have to even more be standing on guard. So who's it written to? Uh, we learn in 2 Peter 3.1 that Peter had written a previous letter to the same people, which makes it likely that the audience is the same as 1 P Peter, probably a group of churches that Peter helped establish in Asia Minor. The audience for Jude is more difficult to pinpoint, though there are context clues sort of buried in the letter that narrow the field just a bit. <clears throat> As an author, Jude seems especially knowledgeable of and adept in explaining Jewish tradition and teaching. You might have noticed in your own reading of Jude, if you read it before coming into the class, that he even goes so far as to refer as extra-biblical Jewish literature. In other words, commenting on things that are not found in the Bible, but just in outside Jewish literature. Uh, and it, a lot of times if you're reading in a study Bible, it'll give you a little uh, note on that. This is, this is coming from this. Uh, verse 9, But when the archangel Michael contended with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment. He said, The Lord rebuke you. We do not have that in the Old Testament. All right? Uh, it may have appeared in a book called The Testament of Moses. This is apocryphal stuff, uh, not necessarily drawn from the Old Testament. So that sort of the broader canon of Jewish writing, not necessarily that which would go into the Bible. Verses 14 and 15, he quotes a prophecy from the book of First Enoch. Again, this is included in the Apocrypha, uh, which we do not include in our canon of Scripture. Uh, Verse 14, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all, to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds, the ungodliness that they've committed in such an ungodly way, and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That's not a quote from the Old Testament, but from the Apocrypha. That doesn't necessarily argue for the inclusion of the Apocrypha in the canon of scripture. You know, let's just pause on this for a second. Uh, there are some who go, it's in there. Like, how can you say that we don't accept the Apocrypha if this is in here? Uh, well, any more than when Paul steps into a secular Greek setting and says, as some of your own poets have said, in him we live and move and have our being. We don't then look to secular poets who are actually not speaking of the one true God, but of pagan gods, and go, well, it's in there. We therefore have to include them. Uh, this is an adaption of that truth into here. And it's entirely possible, as with the section where they're contending over the body of Moses. In fact, it's not only possible, this one has to be true because all scripture is true and God breathed, right? Uh, that even though this isn't included in the Old Testament, even though it is in an apocryphal source, that this bit of it is true. We actually know that to be true because God preserved it in the canon of Scripture for us. That doesn't mean everything else in those books is true and that we have to include them. All right. Um, let's see. I kind of just talked over this next section here. Um, 
Well, I'll just read it to you. What, what is Jude doing? Is he saying that he believes that these books were inspired by the Holy Spirit in the way that the rest of the Old Testament was? No, he quotes these books as books his readers are probably familiar with for the same reason that Paul quotes. Oh man, I didn't even look at that. I didn't even scroll down. I am just, I'm on fire today, guys. This is so good. Uh, so the reference that I, I mentioned earlier off the top of my head <laughs> was Acts 17, 28. Okay, enough of that foolishness. Uh, yeah, let's just move on. Structure and outline. Second Peter. Uh, in tone, Peter's epistle has the same feeling uh, of a farewell address. Chapter 1, verses 12 to 15. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it is right, as long as I am in the body, to stir up to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. I will make every effort so that after my departure, you will be able at any time to recall these things. Uh, he might be writing this from a Roman prison shortly before he would be martyred. Uh, it is as if he is attempting one last time before he dies to offer guidance and encouragement to his readers. So in summary, Peter reminds his audience of what he has taught them in the past. He instructs them on how to live in the present, and he predicts a challenge yet ultimately victorious future for them. So uh, remember what I've said, live like this today, and no matter what you face in the future, there is victory in Christ. Uh, Peter is especially intent on pointing his readers towards God's word, the reliability of scripture. He might soon be leaving them, but God's word is trustworthy. It will never leave and remains a perpetual source of God's inspired comfort and instruction for Christians. We might outline Second Peter in the following way. Chapter 1, an initial greeting, godly living resulting in faith in Christ, a call to holiness and the validity of Peter's testimony and biblical prophecy. Chapter 2, Profile of false teachers, their influence, their character, their final judgment. Chapter 3, anticipation of Christ's return, what it means for scoffers, what it means for Christians, and then it concludes with final exhortations. The book of Jude is composed of 25 verses. It's short, but it packs a powerful punch. The writer comes out swinging, launching almost immediately into attack against the aforementioned false teachers, whom he writes, pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. The tone of Jude is harsh, but as the letter progresses, it becomes clear that such harshness is appropriate given the seriousness of the situation. Jude is in the urgent voice of a loving father who is horrified and therefore spurred on to action by the dire circumstances of his children and where they have found themselves. Yet there's a highly poetic quality in his writing, especially in the descriptions of false teachers. They are waterless clouds and wandering stars, as he calls them. Its vivid language uh, is sort of kneaded into this letter. As we've already mentioned, it is rich in allusions to ancient texts as well. Uh, we can outline Jude like this, verses 1 through 4, a greeting and appeal for Christians to contend for the faith. 
verses 5 through 16, profile of false teachers, their judgment, their motivation, their depravity, verses 17 to 25, final exhortations and doxology. Main themes covered in these books, the certainty of your call. Peter instructs us to be certain of our calling. Uh, having written about our need to be increased in virtue and knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love, Peter writes, chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. It's a really interesting turn of phrase that he uses there. Uh, confirm your calling and election. Is confirm something that we can do or that God does? You're all scared. He tells them, confirm it. That's something we do, right? Your calling and election is calling something we can do or God does. God. God. Election, something we do or God does. God. God. Uh, this points us back to what we read in James earlier. This is not on the shelf of justification before God. Uh, this is, I am living out in living proof to myself and a watching world around me my calling and election, which are sure and have been established from the foundation of the world. But we are to be diligent, that's the word he uses to preface this, to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Fundamentally, confirming on our calling and election means making sure that we are saved. This is a justification, not before God, even not before those who are watching us, but testimony within our own heart, making sure we are Christians. Now making sure that we are Christians requires us to conceptually hold on to two ideas at the same time. It is God who calls and God's calling results in our actions. Two things that must be concurrent if we're going to be convinced in our own heart of our salvation. God's effective call and our action and response. The first few verses of this letter emphasize the fact that it's God who's called us. Our calling is not self-generated. It's not self-empowered. Chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us into his own glory and excellence. If you don't have that one underlined and highlighted and maybe tattooed on your body, uh, you should consider just getting... Yeah. <laughs> That's John's tattoo. Lower back tattoo. Uh, yeah, his divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who's called us into his glory and excellence. We don't call ourselves. What's more, the divine calling is the source of all good things, Peter says, that should characterize our life. Everything that we need for our life, everything that we need for godliness in honoring God in this life is given to us in that divine call. Furthermore, our salvation is not based on ourselves or anything we have done. But Peter introduces himself and addresses us in these first lines. So, just as when Peter, at the beginning of his epistles, introduces himself and gives his credentials, uh, he's not righteous because of the things he has done or suffered 
neither is Peter. And yet uh, he introduces himself, chapter 1, verse 1, Simon Peter, servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God our Savior and Jesus Christ. So Peter, yeah, that Peter. I mean, <laughs> you can also see him writing at the beginning of this. Yeah, that one. That's right. Peter, like Jesus is Peter. That guy, the one who got out of the boat. That guy. I'm writing to you who have an equal faith and standing before God, just like me. I've got no special place before God because I've been that Peter. Our salvation has been won through Christ's righteousness, not ours. Fantastic. And yet, through our call, though our calling is from God, it has implications for us. So Peter was called to some rather specific things that maybe you and I are not called to and won't be called to. And yet, whatever the calling that God has placed on your life, he says, confirm your calling and election. So how do we do that? How do we confirm it? Chapter 1, verse 10, the second half of that verse and 11. If you practice these things, you'll never fail. You'll never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the kingdom of God of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Apparently, we confirm our calling and election by doing. As Kevin DeYoung would say, just do something. We don't save ourselves by doing something. Uh, Peter's super clear about that. The rest of the New Testament is super clear about that. We are saved by God through the righteousness of Christ. Nor do we sustain ourselves by doing something. We know that because he just said his divine power has given us everything that we need, right? So that our are sustaining as a believer what what keeps us in the faith what called us in the faith what keeps us in the faith is still christ yet we must confirm we must make sure we must prove our calling and election by doing these things and you cannot separate them here so it, this is where we have to be uh careful in our reading of this did you notice he says for in this way you will be richly provided for you an entrance into the kingdom of God of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ into his kingdom and it, it's an eternal entrance into that an entrance into his kingdom now and that which comes in eternity in other words God has ordained the means of our actions upon this earth to also be part of that entering into his kingdom now and forever how does that work I got no idea I'll just tell you, I have no idea. Uh, kind of like how does prayer work uh, in the effectiveness of God's plan and the change in my heart? I can see the change in my heart. I have no idea how it works on the sovereign end of God. I just know those are the means that God has ordained for his uh, sons and daughters to walk in. And therefore, Jesus is going to say, when you step into that eternal reward, which is actually what we call it, eternal reward, he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant, and will reward us according to our deeds, our works. And yet we didn't earn anything. Like, it, I, this is just a paradox in your brain that just has to kind of sit there. Uh, and yet, at the forefront of all of that has to be the finished work of Christ that earned us that place. As Jesus said, you will know a tree by its fruit. And I think one of the 
I don't know how it works, but I think I know why it works. And that is uh, in bearing good fruit, when our dead tree, in fact, it's not just a dead tree, because you think about a dead tree, uh, it it's something that's no longer alive. And, you know, it's sort of like bit by bit turning into compost, which is going to be good for the environment. This isn't that. Uh, this is the image of us being a a perpetually standing up undead corpse that is just rotting and putrefying. When God changes that into something that does good works and bears good fruit in the world, it results in the glory of God. We find that again and again in scripture. We do these things unto the glory of God. Uh, whether we're doing our work, we do it as unto the Lord. Uh, when we uh, do it so that unbelievers can see that they might uh, give glory to God. So what, what, is the reason behind it is that God would be glorified in his people bearing much fruit. All right, so as we struggle with pairing God's sovereignty and our responsibility, uh, these first verses in 2 Peter are actually incredibly useful because of how closely they squeeze these two ideas together for us. And yet, God does everything. Even our bearing good fruit, God did that. He made a dead corpse alive and now bears fruit. Like that has to be God's work before we start patting ourselves on the back, like, you know what? I've really turned this thing around. I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> uh, and yet we are still called to action. All right. Uh, so the certainty of the truth. There's another key piece in knowing that we are in Christ, uh, a second kind of certainty. The, the first certainty was the certainty of our election. Uh, the second is the certainty of God's truth. Somebody want to read for me 2 Peter 1, 16 through 19. This is one of the greatest descriptions of the beauty and power centrality of scripture that we have in all of scripture. And one of the things that I love now, this is just me personally. I love it when we can see humanity in the text. So I, I love it as our church has been studying through the book of Genesis. Every time we can see Abraham as a real person, Jacob as a real person, person. Noah is a real, when we see that humanity kind of bleed through the text, uh, it gives authenticity to it. Consider what we just read. Peter, yes, that Peter said, I was there. I was there when it, he doesn't even describe it as God, the father or Yahweh or the God of our fathers. This had such an impact on his soul that he describes 
God that he experienced in that moment as the majestic glory, the majestic glory. Like we never talk about God like that, right? Oh, what was that like? And when the majestic glory echoes from heaven, reverberates like, like it's just coming from the clouds and you know, when you hear thunder, uh, just boom over here. And then it just rolls across the clouds. Like it, it just echoes for miles. And when God spoke, some people say, Oh, I think I heard thunder. That that's actually the description that we get. I was there when the majestic glory thundered. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. I heard the voice like I, we were there. We were with him on the holy mountain. What's the holy mountain? That's the Mount of Transfiguration. We saw Jesus' physical, earthly body be transformed in front of us to this glorious, majestic appearance of the second person of the Trinity. So much so that we fell as dead men on the ground. And then he points to the scripture and he says, and we have an even more sure even more reliable than, than this moment that has changed me forever. More fully confirmed, a, a prophetic word, more fully confirmed to which you do well to pay attention. As much as I paid attention on that day, you need to lock on to God's word because it's even more sure than what I experienced that day. It is a lamp shining in dark places until the day dawns and the morning star, right? That same majestic glory until that rises again, we hold on to God's word. This is, oh man, it's one of my favorite descriptions of the Bible. Uh, unlike many today, we do not hear Peter saying, I like to look at the world in this way. Or, I've always felt like God is like this. <laughs> oh, man, you can just start cringing when someone talks like that. Uh, he says, this happened. We stood there. We saw it. And now Peter says, uh, reporting that the father himself had said about Jesus, uh, this is my beloved son. He says, this is actual factual testimony. This is an eyewitness event. Not only factual, but it also is from God. He continues, uh, read the beginning of 19. Now we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Uh, knowing, first of all, that no prophecy or scripture ever comes from someone's interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter says, not only are we to understand the Old Testament prophets as from the Lord, so that which is in the Old Testament is from the Lord. We don't unhitch from the Old Testament to... Uh, hijack Andy Stanley's message that we need to unhitch from the Old Testament. Uh, what we have is the New Testament. No, that is from the Lord. <clears throat> uh, but we also consider Paul's words, uh, chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, and count... Now, hold on, let me make sure I read this. Finally, Peter says that not only are we to understand the Old Testament prophets as from the Lord, but also Paul's words. Yeah, let me say that right um chapter 3 verse 15 and 16 and count the patience of the lord and salvation just as our beloved brother paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them in these matters 
There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. So here Peter gives uh, firsthand testimony that what Paul is writing is scripture. God has always been truthful. God has always been interested in letting his people know the truth. And so Peter's testimony, like the words of the prophet, is from God. If you want to know where you are and how <clears throat> to get where you want to go, you need a <clears throat> truthful map. Peter understands this, that there's no hope of salvation, let alone assurance of salvation, if the Christian message is not true. So we definitely can't be saved and we definitely can't know we're saved if we don't really believe the Bible. We don't, ha we don't actually know if um, the Christian means of salvation is true. So we approach the topic of false teaching, which we'll get into in Jude and 2 Peter 2, with that kind of foundation. We must believe, we must know that what we believe is true. So the application. Uh, let's pause here and just flesh out a little bit of how we can think about these two certainties. The certainty that our life in Christ as assessed by the fruit of our lives. So it's the make every effort to make your calling and election sure. As Christians, we realize that we will never be perfectly spotless and blameless on this side of heaven. Even so, if we are Christians, the struggle for spotlessness and blamelessness, uh, which remember Peter said, make every effort towards, will characterize you. And it's actually the effort that characterizes you. Not the spotlessness, but the persistent persevering towards holiness. The struggle doesn't make us Christians, but if you're a Christian, this is what you'll do. Do you see these Christian qualities increasing in measure in your life today? Has your life been marked by virtue, by knowledge, by self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love? Now, maybe you can hear some of that list and go, not bad, not bad, terrible. Not bad, not bad. Oh man, needs some work. Uh, the goal, again, I was going to say the goal isn't perfection. The goal is perfection, but not a perfection that we can achieve on our own and in this life. It is, I am constantly straining towards this. Uh, Paul's going to say, I, I'm, I'm eagerly straining toward this, that I might take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. Uh, so, if you look at your life now and then you look at your life 10 years ago, have you seen a growth in virtue and knowledge and self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love? If not, then what comfort do you have concerning your state before God? We should examine ourselves here again to see if you're in the faith. How do we examine ourselves? We examine the fruit of our life. <clears throat> but, but because you can see something of God's activity in your life, uh, we should see a constant, even if it's slow but steady, progression uh, towards righteousness, towards holiness, towards a greater dependence upon God. If you want to confirm your calling and election, examine how you're living now. We are saved by God's grace through Christ, yet we know we are saved by the evidence that we see in our life. So we're saved by Christ, but the way that we know it is by the evidence, by the fruit that we see uh, hanging on our lives, surrounding our lives, all around us. The certainty of God's word. Here's the second one. 
as assessed by the eyewitness testimony of Jesus' followers like Peter. One useful question to help us judge whether or not we are really considered Scripture as God's Word, do I let Scripture contradict me? That's a great question. Do I let Scripture contradict me? Or is my opinion the ultimate arbiter of whether the words are true or not? In the end, if we pick and choose which parts of Scripture to believe and not to believe, we're really just making ourselves our own gods. In fact, we are bending God to meet our expectations of what God should look like. Super dangerous. Uh, scripture becomes a mirror reflecting back to us our own opinion. And God becomes whoever we say he is. It's back to the person going, well, I think God is like, who cares? <laughs> if scripture never rebukes and corrects us, it's a good sign that we don't really see it as God's word. I love it. I love it. I'll just tell you, uh, as a pastor and as someone who preaches God's word regularly, I love it when people come and go, man, you really stepped all over my toes this morning. Man, you really just confronted me in my sin. I love it because I almost 100% of the time think, I did? That wasn't my intention. <laughs> There's been one or two sermons that I can think of in the last couple years that I knew going in, uh, this is going to be challenging and confrontational uh, to ways of thinking that is going to be a general call to repentance. And then most of it is just expositional preaching. Just preaching the Bible, what it says, what are the applications, what are the implications. And so when people come and go, man, you really did this. I love it because I can go, uh, actually, no, I didn't. I almost never say that, but I'm like, that's awesome. I, I'm glad that God spoke to you because uh, that's what happened. Like it was God convicting his own people. That was just good fruit taking uh, bud on their life. Uh, it's just beautiful how God does that. And if we just like script it and manipulate it, man, that's not real conviction. Like that's, that's either condemnation or manipulation. And I don't know about you, but if uh, New Year's resolutions have any uh, testimony into longevity, uh, that's going to last about two weeks, right? Uh, two months if you really give it the old college try. Uh, when God convicts the heart, though, man, that's when you see lasting change. Do I let Scripture contradict me? Uh, another suggestion is to ask others, do we contend for the faith? Right at the outset of this letter, Jude is going to write uh, this. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Uh, Jude tells them to contend for the faith. That is the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ the truth about his atoning death and his call to discipleship, right? So you, it, it's not just sort of abstract truths about a guy named Jesus and what he accomplished. It should lead to that third one. What are the implications for our life together? If the word of God is true, then it's worth defending and sharing. Do you defend the faith? Are you prepared to defend it? What stops you? 
that when you knew you were supposed to speak and you failed to, what was it that stopped you? We're called as Christians to contend for the faith. That doesn't mean we've been called to be contentious. Maybe that's a good, good balance to strike in there. Uh, you can contend for the faith and not just be the biggest jerk you know. Social media is not God's gift to you, right? It, no one cares what you're saying. Uh, we need to be contending for the faith without being contentious. All right. Uh, without those two pieces of the foundation, certainly our life in Christ and the certainty of God's word, you will not withstand the deceptions of this world. Man, that's a depressing statement. If we don't have it, if we're not fully convinced of our salvation, we're not fully convinced of the truth of God's word, uh, we will be swept away by every wind and wave of doctrine. But with those two pieces in place, you're safe. As you read through 2 Peter 1 and ask yourself, to what extent are we really certain of those two things? To the extent that you're not, ask another Christian to get together with you and talk through that. And by the way, if that's you, you should probably do that right away. <laughs> like that's a, that's a pertinent task for uh, contending for the faith in your own life. Uh, these two things, our certainty of Christ and our certainty of his word, provide a great summary of the foundation of the Christian life, useful both in our lives and in the lives of those around us. The certainty of bad fruit from faithless teaching uh, is the next area to consider. There is bad fruit that comes from bad teachers. Be sure of your calling. Be sure you know the truth. Peter says it. Jude confirms it. Because you can be certain of something else. False teachers will come and offer false assurances. Peter mentions the prophets of the Old Testament at the end of chapter 1 and pre prepares us for uh, his warning about false teachers, which is going to come in chapter 2. These teachers are false and can be seen, not only in the message they preach, but in the way that they act and the way that they live. So first off, he says they despise authority. Chapter 2, verse 10, uh, Jude writes it in verse 8. Peter's going to go on. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. These false teachers are confident even though they are ignorant. When any spiritual authority other than their own is mentioned, they mock it. Another interjection here, uh, we need to be careful as reformed believers who get a hold of some sort of truth not to become either contentious or constantly condescending and mocking towards those who we have differences of opinion of the gospel of the true saving faith, uh, just the secondary issues or third issues, we don't want to be condescending. Now, if they're denying Christ, if they're denying the truth of salvation, uh, yeah, mock them all you want to, right? Uh, it, that's we, we read that in scripture, like God in heaven laughs. He holds them in derision. Oh, you think you found another way. God laughs at that. God mocks that. Uh, if we are talking about brothers and sisters, about who we have strong theological disagreements, our interaction with them should not be marked by contention or condescension, uh, but a clear call to the truth. 
right? We can hold both of those things without um, slipping into becoming super jerks again. Not only do they despise authority, this is the false teachers, but they regularly engage in immorality. They follow their own evil desires and their own ungodly desires, Jude 16 and 18. Peter writes, 2 Peter 2, 13 and 14, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast on you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. It's interesting, Martin Luther, uh, the father of the Protestant Reformation, had no desire to spark a Protestant Reformation. He loved the Roman Catholic Church. It was the church in which he grew. It was the church he was calling to Reformation. He loved the idea of Rome and her governing over the church around the world. And so when he makes his first trip, him and another young monk uh, were called to go to Rome on behalf of the college that he was teaching at, uh, and he was so excited. He, he goes to Rome, he makes the pilgrimage uh, where they have the stairs that are allegedly the stairs uh, that Jesus would have ascended before Pilate that were literally picked up in the Crusades from Jerusalem and brought to Rome and made as part of that. And so uh, pilgrims would go to Rome and climb those stairs on their knees, considering Christ, considering his sacrifice. And he goes to Rome, uh, climbs these stairs on his knees, and he gets to the top and turns and looks around and just feels nothing. He's just overwhelmed by the debauchery of Rome. The, what we would consider normal today in um, our political terms of just like selling uh, you know, your votes for this and that and indulgences being sold and handed out. But even worse... Uh, there were entire brothels of prostitution set up just for cardinals and bishops in Rome. That the men he was looking to, and he sees they have their own whorehouses set up, and he is horrified. He is uh, completely disillusioned with the entire thing. Uh, that's, that's kind of what he's pointing to here, that these false teachers, it will sooner or later be evident in their life. That what's under the surface at some point is going to come up to the top. Fundamentally, these false teachers disconnect holiness from doctrine in their lives and teaching. It doesn't matter how you live as long as you believe, as long as you follow our rules. Do what you want, you're saved. Can you see, can you hear how dangerous that teaching is, not only to the church, but to individual souls? These teachers continually give people false hope with false stories. Chapter 2, verse 3, In their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. They're like fake doctors who promise healing when they only want your money. Soldiers in World War II who promise people showers only to usher them into the gas chambers. That's the image of false teachers. That's why Peter and Jude were both motivated to say we have to speak to this. Peter says it is utter darkness that is reserved for them. Jude and Peter agree that behind the moral failure of immorality 
is an active moral rebellion. Jude 4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Impure lives, when you get right to it, are a product of faithlessness, of not having faith and denying the truth. So Jude says, like Cain in Genesis 4, like Balaam in Numbers 22, like Korah in Numbers 16, these men have lifted themselves up against God's people, God's truth, God's way, and ultimately they stand against God himself. So the third area of certainty in these letters is that false teachers will come and their lives and their fruit will reveal the wickedness of what they teach. The certainty of God's judgment is the next area to consider, which brings us to the final theme in 2 Peter and Jude. We can be certain in the end that God will judge the whole world. That's why Peter exhorts his readers to be certain of their salvation from the start. Some, he writes, will scoff at the project of judgment. Chapter 3, verse 3 and 4, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days. With scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all these things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Like, are you kidding? Jesus hasn't come and fixed it, and the world's always been like this. You guys are crazy. That's basically what they're saying. Here's Peter's counter-argument, verses 5 through 7. For they will deliberately overlook the fact that the heavens existed long ago, the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by the means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now existed are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. We were in Canada visiting Destin and Jen, which is incredibly liberal. And we went into one of the local grocery stores it was kind of like the a mini version of a walmart super center and as we walked in the front door we were greeted with an entire rack of uh, white t-shirts that had two styles on it with only two styles of t-shirt uh, one was the canadian maple leaf like the the thing that's on their flag well inside the maple leaf was just a white t-shirt canadian maple leaf with the rainbow inside of it or just a rainbow on a white t-shirt and I kick myself to this day because what I should have done was bought the rainbow t-shirt and then taken the little cricket that we have at home and put on it the letters of uh, second Peter next time fire <laughs> the rainbow is the symbol that God will not destroy the earth with water again now it's being stored up for fire so, God judged the heavens and the earth by his word. God judged the, un, the word. Blah, blah, blah. I'll, just, I'll just start yawning. <laughs> God judged the earth once by flood. And here's the promise. By that same word that brought the flood and destruction of mankind, the world is in a holding pattern waiting for fire that will judge it again. Peter then gives two explanations for why thinking God will not judge is wrong. Number one, time is completely different for God. 
Chapter 3, verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. Uh, this does not mean a literal way of thinking about time with God, right? So uh, liberal theologians who want to apply this back to Genesis and go, but a thousand years like day. And by a thousand, of course, we mean million or billion. Depends on how far we got to stretch this out to make it work. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, you say it's not happening because time's gone by. You don't understand time's different with God. Judgment's coming. Interesting that that's the passage that they use to go, oh no, God didn't really create things like that. Yeah, good passage to choose, but judgment's coming. That's, that's the point of that. Number two, God will not... God has not yet judged finally, and it doesn't mean that his judgment isn't coming. 3 verse 9. Uh, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Don't make the mistake of assuming that because God has graciously held back his judgment, judgment will never come. God will, in fact, judge. And when he does, it will come Suddenly, verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth and all its works that are done on it will be exposed. False teachers will one day face the judgment of God and it will be a terrible day for them. This judgment is so terrible and sure that Jude puts it in the past tense. It's, it's coming in the future and Jude says it's so confident then I'm going to talk about it like it's a finished reality. Verse 11, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion. goes on to say in verses 12 and 13, These are hidden reefs at your love feast. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up foam for their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. But false teachers are not the only ones who will face God's judgment. We too, and when we face God's judgment, our teachers will not be standing beside us. We don't get to stand before God and say, But John Piper said, But John Mormon said, but John MacArthur said, it's basically people named John, right? That's the issue. Uh, each of us will someday give an account for how we use the lives that God has graciously given us. With this thought fresh in our minds, with the certainty of God's judgment hovering over us, how should we respond? What kind of people ought we to be? So that's the application. Build one another up. Our concern for one another and our concern for the truth should lead towards unity with each other. Not disunity, not breaking off a fellowship because we have slight and small secondary disagreements. The fact that we love the truth should mean that we love one another. In scripture, error brings division. All tearing down, unless it is tearing down expressly for the gospel, is wrong. You are called, as Jude says in verse 20, to build yourselves up in the most holy faith. This building up in the faith should direct and define our relationships. Now, depending on the disagreements, we can only build so far with people. But as we come to greater and greater 
agreement and unity, especially when you're pointing towards the gospel. Uh, so the gospel, we should have a wide base, and we can build uh, widely with people. Uh, where there are disagreements, we, we don't build quite as high, right, with, say, the Methodist church in town as we will with Maple Grove. But we should be able to build up a unity of the body of Christ, that we should be able to work together on core issues and doctrines. In the light of coming judgment, uh, shouldn't this spark us to encourage each other all the more? Running a race can be difficult. Uh, rather than just saying, you're on your own, we're on our own, uh, don't talk to us anymore, we should consider we are in this together. Christian friendship and discipleship relationships have at their heart a desire to build up each other in the faith. So questions to you, do you have relationships like that? Where you remind each other of the truth of the gospel? Where you encourage each other with God's evident work in your lives? Where you confess sin? Could we have more relationships like these in our lives? The answer is yes. What is stopping us? What keeps us from that? Uh, just practical encouragement, because sometimes we go like, yeah, and then we just move on. Uh, I think it's helpful, like, think about a person. Maybe a person that you could build up and encourage. Maybe as we gather for worship tomorrow, uh, looking for a person uh, who needs some encouragement, who needs somebody to come draw beside them. Uh, as you do that, you'll find yourself being encouraged and challenged as well. Uh, here's the second one. Pray in the Spirit. Uh, finally, Jude commands us in the second half of the verse of 20 to pray in the Holy Spirit. False teachers, he described in contrast, do not have the Spirit. We, on the other hand, are to pray as God's own Spirit leads us into truth by reading his word. In short, the life of faith is marked by prayer to God. Both individually and corporately, we show our reliance on him and hope in him by praising him and calling out to him in prayer. Conclusion, let's close with one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible, the doxology found at the end of Jude, verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory and great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.